Africa got here just in the nick of time. What does that make us? Big damn heroes, sir. Ain't we just? film enthusiasts shoot the breeze about all things film and television. I'm Marcus E. Ako, and I'm really happy that the weather is getting much better in the UK. Hi, I'm producer Dave. Yep, I am so ecstatic that the the weather is getting so much better. And also um, we're able to soon be able to go out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The the lockdown is going to be lifted pretty soon. So we're looking forward to that. It's just this morning, it's like the last few days when you step out and, uh, you know, you've got to wear a coat, a scarf, a hat, gloves, goggles, boots, <laughs> and everything just to just to take the trash out and whatnot. This morning, did it in a T-shirt and I was like, yes, that feels warm. That feels great. I came back in. I was like, yeah, we're going to be having some fun. We're going to go to the park, you know, you know, do the exercise thing, do the walk around and whatnot with the dogs. And literally, as I said that, it started to rain. So like, <laughs> thanks. But now the sun's come out again. So that's good. That's yeah. good. Happy, yeah. happy about that. You listen to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm producer Dave. And we have uh, a, not a jam-packed show today. We've got, uh, we're going to re- uh, put some of the interviews that we had from the Paris International Film Festival. We love those guys. Um, Jenna Suru uh, set up an amazing festival this year. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because I, I happened to pick up one of the, uh, the awards uh, for, for best features um, screenplay for uh, my screenplay, pull out couch which i think it was oh your own home go on yes uh, anyway you but there were some other fantastic filmmakers that we had the chance to speak to we're going to be replaying some of the interviews that we had with them we're going to be interview interviewing them again in in depth for their projects and other projects in the in the coming weeks there are a few of them uh kazi uh, targunas is going to be coming back on we're going to have Serena Ryan come back on, talk about her projects. Uh, we'll have a number of other uh, people coming in the next few weeks uh, to talk about their projects. And we're going to do, uh, uh, not in this episode, but soon, we were talking about this, we're going to do the Wonder Woman spoiler episode, Wonder Woman 84 spoiler episode. But that will be coming in a few weeks to give you all the opportunity to go and watch the film, understand it, digest it, watch it again if you need to, and then you can join in the conversation if you want to. 
Um, and if and maybe we might even have a special guest return to to join us. I'm not going to say <laughs> who, just in case, because uh, I don't want to jinx it. I know me. Every time I say something, I jinx it. I have to yeah. have a quick chat about um, what happened with HBO Max and uh, uh, what happened when they released it on Wonder Woman 84, when they released mm-hmm. it on HBO Max in America, because it wasn't, we don't have HBO Max here. Um, and early reports is that HBO Max increased their viewership or their, um, their sign up take up by something like a thousand percent. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it, it's, it was obviously going to do that. They were, they, they pretty much had, they, they, they put a gun against the audience's head and said, look, if you want to watch this, you need to come and do this. So a lot of people begrudgingly signed up for it. So, but we'll, we can talk about that in a little bit more detail later on when we discuss Wonder Woman 84. Yeah. Uh, but for, uh, for this episode, we'll kick it off with an interview that we're doing, that we uh, are going to do with um, previous guest that we've had on the show, SMC Silva, the music uh, film, the music director, who's going to be coming on to talk about his latest uh, project. It's a new music video. We'll let him talk about it, which we'll do in the next section, which is film and TV news. <laughs> You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Akko. I'm producer Dave. And we're joined by a filmmaker and a music video director who it's been it's just been brought to our attention. It has been three years since we spoke to this gentleman. Please tell us your name and uh, the latest project that you've worked on. Hi, guys. Great to be back on the show. So I'm SMC Silver and I'm a film director and recently... I have just released a short film called Daivaya. Uh, now, now Daivaya uh, is. I uh, no, I'm sorry. I was, was going to say, SM, thank you very much for coming for coming back and joining us. It's just it, like we said, it was a, such a long time since we spoke. Uh, you were back on when we were back in the studio. That was the last time we spoke. Um, and this new project that you that you worked on, this short film, tell us what is it? What is it about? Okay, so. It's one of those funny things when you're um, trying to talk about your your latest project and what the film means and what it's about, because as you know, Marcus and, and Dave, with all pieces of art, the way we perceive it is a reflection of the way we are as individuals ourselves. So you, you give the same piece of art to two people, they'll infer two completely different meanings, or at least I hope so. What I can say with Daivaya is instead of um, pushing for kind of a set narrative or following a certain arc, which you might be able to break down from other short films or features or whatever, this piece for me was more about creating a feeling and um, tapping into experiences of my own life and and the way I see myself as, as well as the way I see the world externally. So that's kind of, what Daivaya is in a sense, and I know that might be ambiguous, but I, I don't want to necessarily give away the meaning as such, but more kind of create a debate as to what it means. So my question back to you guys is what did you perceive when you watched Daivaya? 
for me was very hypnotic. It was, uh, it was very, it, it's just watching it and listening to the music and the sounds uh, that were coming from it. I, I felt it's weird to say, just felt at peace, just sitting there and just observing it as it came through the imagery as well that you had uh, sort of the illustrations. Cause if, for those people who, who haven't had a chance to watch it, it's, it's more of um, is more of a graphic art as art project. How can I describe it? Animation, right? So it's more animated as opposed to a live action film. So watching it, listening to the music, having all of that connect, put me in a sense of calm. It was it was very weird to as well to to experience that just by watching short film, especially considering the fact that some of the short films that we've been watching for um, Paris International Film Festival that just went in are very emotionally taught dramas and thrillers. So it's, it's sort of uh, having watched all of those and then coming down to watching this and just essentially as soon as it started, as soon as the music kicked in, and I did want to ask a little bit on the music as well. As soon as the music kicked in. It just everything I was doing just settled down and it was just that hypnotic feel just washed over me. And that's one of the questions I wanted to ask. Who who was the musician who produced the music and the score of this film that you did? So really um, awesome to hear all your kind of like perceptions with the film. And, you know, that's that's amazing that you're kind of inferring those things. And yeah, so when we're talking about the music, I was very blessed to have the opportunity to collaborate with Dinesh Subasinghe. So Dinesh is a modern legend of Sri Lankan film composition. And I've actually been listening to his music. I've been listening to it since I was a teenager, really. He's, the variety of instruments he plays, and this is even before he you know, jumps into composition, whether we're talking the violin, the mandolin, the guitar, he really has a wide understanding of Eastern and Western sound design, which he, he brings together in his art. That's also one of his kind of uh, facets of his kind of musical style. But yeah, so I was, I was quite blessed to have the opportunity to create art with him. And the brilliant thing I suppose with creating art with him is, is like I do with all creatives. When you create with someone, you know, there are some directors and everyone has a different approach to their art. And, I think we should commend that and celebrate that. Now, where some directors are very so focused on the output and the way their vision should be grafted, for me, it's it's very much a two-way thing. And I, I encourage someone to bring their own strengths to the table because the, the end of the day, when you bring the right person to the project, you know that they're free to kind of create in their wheelhouse because that's the wheelhouse you're looking for. So with Dinesh, when we first kind of talked about the project and what we were looking to do, you know, I, while I won't um, say, you know, break down everything in terms of the philosophy we were trying to discuss, he really understood the philosophical elements which we were trying to convey on a deeper level. And uh, he, he was able to kind of bring that philosophy and deeper inference through the sound design. So. It was really, um, really serendipitous, shall we say, that Dinesh joined the project and um, he really elevated the piece and, and took it in its own direction as well. Um, and I think it's, it's kind of one of those things where before I went about kind of going on this project, you know, it, it kind of just happened and it, it kind of created itself in a way. But you think of 
silent projects, maybe you're thinking of Wally -E or Red Turtle, for example. These films, while the direction, the cinematography, everything comes in so strongly, the sound design really, like all of those other elements of mise-en-scene, um, can really guide the way someone perceives it. And um, for that, I have to thank Dinesh for taking Daivaya on the path he did. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm producer Dave. Um, SMC, I just want to quickly ask you, um, what was your intention behind the film? What was the genesis of the film? And where did you want people to be once they viewed the film? Uh, thanks for asking that, Dave. So I guess when I think about when the project was coming to life or, or, or the, the art piece, as it were, it was towards the beginning of the first lockdown um, last year, uh, maybe towards May, March, May kind of time. And, and I was at that point, I was actually, um, I was in pre-production for a tragedy, a tragic drama film, uh, which was going to go into production until we had obviously coronavirus. So when... Um, the first lockdown hit us, I started thinking, is this tragic drama the kind of piece of art that I want to put into the world right now? Um, and it, it wasn't the case. I decided to go in a different direction and uh, in a way kind of diversify the style of art I used to kind of put out and, and take it on a different direction. So I suppose the genesis of this project came from trying to completely flip the narrative on my own artistic journey, but likewise flip the narrative of what everyone was kind of feeling in the, the beginnings of the first lockdown or the, the beginnings of, of this uh, crazy pandemic. So this is where the project came to life. And then the little I can say about it is obviously as a proud uh, man of Sri Lankan descent, uh, you know, I'm also, uh, a descendant of Vera Pranapu, a very famous Sri Lankan man, it kind of was quite important to me to tap into my ancestry and then raise that into the world stage and kind of take it on a new direction as well. So I would say very much so that Sri Lanka and my relationship with Sri Lanka uh, plays a very strong part in the genesis of this project. And if I'm being honest, I wish I was locked down there from day one, but I do have a belief as well that Sri Lanka is a state of mind. And what I mean there is, you know, I'm sure we all have our favorite place on earth or maybe a place beyond earth, shall we say. And I guess we're, we're able to tap into that as long as we're in control of our mind, as it were. And that is a, a brief explanation into how uh, Daivio was birthed. Okay, I just want to also ask, um, you mentioned that you collaborated with Dinesh. I mean, who else were you um, influenced by in producing the music for the video? So the thing is, when it came to this film, Dinesh was just the first option without a doubt, because I've been listening to his music for years um, and Dinesh, He's one of those musicians who, you know, when I started listening to his music, he was covering uh, some of the traditional legends of Sri Lankan music. 
whether we're talking about Wally Bastian. In the process of covering all these legends and then creating his own compositions, he became a legend himself. So it was very much um, a, a clear, clear answer to me to, to go for Dinesh. Um, and I'm just lucky that he was available and, and he was excited for the project. And yeah, that, that's kind of where we went on that direction. But while Dinesh did a brilliant job, it would be remiss if I didn't mention the animator as well, as Marcus was talking about this very kind of graphic um, animations we were seeing. So the animator, James McManus, so, you know, rounding out the world travel, we've got me in the UK, Dinesh in Sri Lanka and James in the USA. James really brought a, um, a beautiful and shall we say transcendental visual style to Daivaya. And I guess it kind of ties to his artistic influences as well. And uh, yeah, he, he did really a beautiful job, to be honest. That's, uh, that, was, that was actually going to be my next question, who worked on the animation. So thank you very much, SMC, for bringing that up. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm producer Dave. And we're with SMC Silva, the uh, film director behind the film, uh, the short film, Davia. Now, uh, Davia, it's spelled D-A-I-V-A-V-Y-A. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. What, what does that mean? What, is, what does that word mean? So Davia is the Sinhalese word for destiny. Now, I wanted to, I didn't want to use the traditional singular letters because to be honest, I don't think people will be able to understand it. <laughs> yes. So that's why I thought, you know, I'd kind of use the, the English letters, as it were, to represent that word. Um, but it means destiny is, is what it means. Excellent. And how can people uh, get to see this film and get hypnotized like I was by the visual style and the music? Well, Marcus, I think at this point in time, they're going to have to wait for Daivia's festival run. Uh, it's currently in the very, very early run of festivals. As you know, they run all year. And then towards the ending of the year, I think Daivia will go public for everyone to enjoy. Fantastic. SMC, uh, if anyone wants to follow you and see some of the other uh, works that you've done, your back catalogue, where can they find you? They can find me at smcsilver.com or they can go to me at Instagram at s.m.c.silver. As you guys can tell, I love hearing my name. So there we go. <laughs> wasn't going to say that, but that's okay. It's, it's, a great, it's a great branding technique. At the end of the day, you know, we've, we were told by Elise Quevedo, uh, social media strategist, that we were doing a terrible job doing social branding with our, with our uh, Shoot the Breeze, where we had on, re on Facebook, it was Shoot the Breeze on Resonance FM. And on Twitter, it was STB underscore Resonance FM. And on Instagram, it was Shoot the Breeze Show. So she was like, what is wrong with you? It's <laughs> different names for different places. So you seem to have it locked down already. Uh, SMC, thank you very much for joining us on Shoot the Breeze. Uh, we wish you all the best with Davia, all the success that you have. Um, and we need to make sure that you come back on the show uh, a lot sooner than three years from now. Thank you very much, Marcus and Dave, for having me. It's an absolute pleasure being on the show again. And guys, take care, and I look forward to being back. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. I'm producer Dave. And that was our conversation that we had myself and producer Dave with SMC Silver talking about his latest music video. Let's jump to 
Spotlight. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. And I'm David Campbell. And we have another film that is included in the Paris International Film Festival. This is a comedy feature film. Uh, We have the filmmakers with us. Please tell us your names and the name of your film. Oh, hello, Marcus. Thank you. Uh, I'm Lisa Bambi. Hi, I'm Marcus and David. I'm Tom Alberts. And the name of our film is The Big Kitty. Excellent. Welcome, Lisa and uh, Tom. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, first of all, what is The Big Kitty? Well, it's a comedy film noir. Um, It's a a feature film, completely independently created by um, Lisa and myself and our friends, Melbourne artists. So it was made in Australia and um, uh, we finished it a couple of years back and... It's just been accepted into the Paris International Film Festival, which we're thrilled about. And then, uh, that, that's good. And we'll be looking at some of the um, some of the promotional material for it. As you said, it's a it's a noir comedy. Uh, you're sort of you're diving into my wheelhouse there. Like I have a very soft spot for <laughs> for noir films, especially. Um, like tell us what is this film about? Um, it's set in 1949 in New World. A Russian princess comes to New World with cat and chauffeur. She goes to a nightclub with cat and chauffeur. There's a musical singing number and there's a blackout. And when the lights come back on, cat is gone. And Russian princess hires the services of private detective, Mr. Guy Boyman. Play play by me. Princess Yakova Ilinidich, Russian princess, moi même. Um, and so Russian princess hires the services of Detective Privet Guy Boyman for finding off her pushka, her cat. And it, it, you, can see, you can tell from some of the promotional material, it's a big, it's a romp of a, of a comedy. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I was interested to talk to yourselves. Um, what was, it, it's, it says in the, on IMDb that it was written by Tom. So Tom, I'll throw this question to you. What inspired you to write this particular film? Well, Marcus, um, we're both visual artists and um, it's a question that um, as a visual artist, a a painter involved in making images of things and people, uh, the question arose, you know, if um, Rembrandt or um, Velazquez or uh, one of the great artists of previous times was alive now, would they be a filmmaker? Um, I'm still not quite sure, but... (laughs) It is a question that as an artist, you can ask yourself. So um, I decided to make a film and it began a long time ago and it led to this huge kind of, uh, you know, this huge project that lasted 11 years and involved everything and every bit of ourselves and all of our friends um, and, you know, quite a bit of money and time because I wanted to look at, you know, what is this thing making a film? And it ended up being a feature film and a comedy and, uh, you know, just about everything they say you're not supposed to do. Don't use your own money. Don't use your friends. Don't work with children or animals. Um, <laughs> we did it all. <laughs> Absolutely. And you, like, like, like regular auteurs, you pretty much, your names are dotted on the 
production crew list doing practically everything. Production was designed by Tom Alberts. You got makeup by uh, Lisa Bambi. Uh, costume. Now, the costume I want to jump onto in particular, because Tom, you designed the costume. Sort of what was your, I mean, it is, obviously, because you're setting it in the 40s, you've pretty much dived in. Who did you look to as inspiration for the costume design? Um, all of the great golden era Hollywood movies, you know, Edith Head and um, uh, the, the, the beautiful designers and costumers of that era, beautiful, you know, wonderful creations. And actually quite often done on a budget. The 40s was a tough time for money. You know, there was a world war on and people didn't have all that much money. Um, and, and, you know, but they were clever and they had a great sense of style and design. Um, and, you know, it also explains film noir, you know, it was a matter of budget. They couldn't afford to have lights everywhere. Um, so but there was a lot of dark. But um, I think, you know, it, it, it's that feeling of the golden era of Hollywood, that everything was looked after, you know, hair, makeup, hats, clothes, you know, men had to look a certain way. You know, friends wanted to be in the film, but they had a beard and we said, well, Almost no one had a beard in the 40s. <laughs> you know, it's not going to work out, you know. Um, so there was a lot of uh, issues about what is the style of that time? How do you light a face in the 40s? I, I, I dived into it. I read books. I looked up things online. And the internet was really just sort of coming into its strength when I started this, you know, just 12 mm. years ago, the internet was just sort of getting rich with information. So I, I, I discovered a lot of things through that and went, went and read a lot of books and I'd already learned to sew with my mum and um, uh, so, and Lisa of course can sew. And so, you know, making things and doing things and putting things together and um, uh, taking a suit off the rack and transforming it into the police commissioner's uniform we can do that sort of thing. That, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's talent right there. Just being able to go in and dive and do and practically be any part of the crew. It, a lot of people tend to avoid it because obviously you need to have a speciality in one particular area, but it seems you have, or both of you seem to have those specialities to be able to make, to make it work. Lisa, you're credited as, the, as a co-director on the project. What was your, uh, what was your vision in regards to actually stepping into this to direct this feature film? Um, is, is this your first feature film, Lisa, that you've directed? Yes, absolutely. I am well, co-director and um, I really love taking photographs and uh, I like looking at things as if on a set and it's how I approach my painting as well. I've often made a little mise-en-scene, um, like a theatre set. And um, it was really great being able to have um, the monitor. We had a monitor that we got in board, got on, so we could show our friends who were acting in the film, how the set would look. And we wanted to make everybody look good. That was a very important thing. And um, of course, have a steady eye, uh, have the camera at the right level for the shot. And um, it was um, very important when friends looked at the monitor and they went, oh my God, you really are making something here. 
and then they kind of had more faith in us and then were more acceptable of taking direction from both of us, which was very nice because when Tom was in a scene, I was filming and directing. And when I was in a scene, um, Tom was directing and filming. And when we were both in a scene, which we, <laughs> we just had the camera set up and focused and our sound on a stand our mic on a stand and yeah. then went into position and one of us pressed the start button and then we acted the scene. Yeah, Marcus, we actually had no crew. That's Zero crew. No we, had a couple, no, we had a couple of guest cinematographers, well, um, yeah, on occasion, for yeah. the nightclub scene and for when Tom is running down the back alleyway, I was, um, we had from, uh, Fabrice Bigot for the nightclub scene and we had Anthony Yark, who was filming while I was driving the car as Tom was running down the back alley scene. That That's a fantastic feat to handle that without a crowd. You're listening to you're listening uh, with us where we've got the uh, directors and stars of The Big Kitty, Lisa Bambi and Tom Alberts. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. I'm David Campbell. And I just want to quickly ask, um, you said this started many, many years ago. How long did it actually take to actually shoot the film? 12 years. I thought it was 11. Well, one year we didn't do anything. There was one dark year where actually, we filmed nothing. Yeah, I think it was 11 years with one year that we didn't do anything and we went, oh my, you know, we've got to do something about it was like this. like January the 3rd and I said, Tom, we didn't film one scene of the big kitty last year and it was becoming terrible because every opening we went to as artists, our friends were in the film and say, when are we going to see this film? Yeah. And so everyone that it, we knew was in it and they were saying, when are you going to finish it? So it became quite a, quite a, a, a thing, you know. A, we were determined to finish it. We were determined to finish it. A real labour of love. But yeah, that is incredible. It's a good uh, question, David, because literally... Lisa will go to a door and walk through it and five years later walk into the room. You know, <laughs> so, so we had to have a, a, you know. a good um, uh, map of that. Like it, it all takes, the film takes place over, I think, four days and four nights. And in we had, reality. <laughs> in reality, it took 11 years. But, um, uh, but so we had, we had like costume map, you know, we had to keep, keep clothes, you know, we had to make sure that they were sure. in our wardrobe and we, kept everything uh, we moved house time. and, you know, the, 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 the logistics of it were completely crazy. You have and, some, you have some Hollywood movies where they call the actor to come in and do some reshoots and it's only weeks or months apart and you can tell the clear difference of Hugh Jackman, for example, in, um, <laughs> in, in the one with the, with the robots fighting. I can't remember the name of that one. Uh, and um, and there's the, the, you can see one scene to the next and he's already bulked up for Wolverine. So it's oh, clearly, oh, you can yeah. clearly see the difference as to when he, when he came back in to do the reshoots. You, on the other hand, had years apart to do scenes. That is, yeah. it is absolutely incredible. And now you've got your first showing, you've got your showing at uh, the Paris International Film Festival. How did you get involved with that project? Um, well, um, Lisa has been handling um, the process of uh, um, uh, submitting our film to 
contests and things? You, yeah, you basic, should... basically through Film Freeway because that's the biggest format. But I was, um, we were just in another festival, the San Francisco Another Hole in the Head Festival, which was really cool to be a part of and fantastic and great um, uh, conversation. And that was really well received. And so that was San Francisco and we couldn't be there. But we are here in Paris, living here at the moment. And... Uh, I was very keen to find a good festival for us um, <laughs> to enter in Paris because Paris is my spiritual home and I lived here a long time ago for five years, studied drama at Cours Florent where Jenna Suru, who's the director of the Internet Paris International Film Festival, also studied coincidentally. And I also worked as an usherette at Art House Cinemas in Paris and have a super fondness. Um, it was my favorite job in the world. And all I did was put my hand out and hope somebody would put a gold coin in my hand as I showed them to a seat with a torch. You know, it was um, <laughs> hand to mouth existence as a drama it, student. It almost doesn't exist anymore. No, it's like, uh, no, but I'm still friends old... with the cinema people from Paris and the art house cinemas. So I could think of nothing better than getting our film into a fabulous Paris film festival. And we do have a bit that is filmed in Paris. Uh, Fantastic, there you go. <laughs> the Frenchman. We have uh, a lovely artist friend, Jean de la Demel, who is very keen to be a part of it. And said, Lisa, you know, you always said I could be in your film. And I said, well, I'll talk to my fellow director and we'll <laughs> see what we can do. And we were just visiting Paris. So Tom wrote a little scene. We had a camera, not the one we'd filmed the whole film with, but we improvised and we bought hats and suits and we got the scene done on yeah. one cold afternoon in Paris. <laughs> Fascinating story of how to get how you got uh, the big kitty now fully made. Um, we wish you all the best at the Paris International Film Festival. Uh, Tom and Lisa, thank you very much for joining us on Shoot the Breeze. Uh, and we'll definitely want to get you to come back on to tell us how it's, uh, you know, how successful it's been and uh, how you've, you've now followed you, you, when the COVID lockdown has been lifted and you move around the world to explore with uh, the Big Kitty. We'd love to have you back in the studio with us. Oh, we would be delighted, Marcus. And thank you, David. And this has been a real treat to be on your radio show. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako, and we have another set of filmmakers whose film is currently in the Paris International Film Festival. Uh, I, I'll throw it to them to introduce themselves and the name of the film. My name is Bill Einreinhofer. I am the executive producer of Invisible Love. Hi, my name is Nancy Hanjung Shen. People call me Nancy because it's easier to remember my name. Uh, I am the producer as well as the first assistant director of the film Invisible Love. Hi, I'm Kazi Toganus. Uh, I'm an actor. I play uh, James Marquis in Invisible Love. Excellent. Thank you very much, William, Nancy, and Kazi. Uh, William, let me throw to you. What is Invisible Love? Well, at its heart, it is a love story. It's a period piece. It takes place in French Indochina or what was known as French Indochina during the 1930s. It's the story of a woman who wants nothing more than to love and to be loved, yet is hurt time and again by the men she thinks 
love her. There's also a, a subtext to the film in that it looks at colonialism and the absolutely corrosive effect that colonialism has on the colonizers as well as those who were colonized. And how, what was the inspiration behind uh, the making of this film? I think in part it grew out of a uh, co-production arrangement that, that the various companies who are involved uh, have been pursuing. This is unique in that it's a China, Vietnam and US co-production. Frankly, I can't think of any other co-productions like that that have taken place previously. And it's an original, original piece of fiction that was written specifically for this film. And Kazi, um, what, what was it like uh, jumping into, because you play a character called James Marquise, is that correct? Correct. Uh, what, what was it like getting into sort of this, this massive wide scale production uh, from your part? Well, you know, I, I've, I've worked on uh, a, lot of, a lot of different types of films, you know, um, from, from like Dolomite Is My Name with Betty Murphy, it was like a comedy, a period piece, uh, uh, Equalizer 2 with Denzel, uh, so, and, and, and numerous indie film productions. Uh, but I'll tell you, when I stepped on set for Invisible Love, I'm, I'm really a fan of the period piece. One of, you know, working on, on Dolomite was probably one of my favorite productions just because period pieces always allow you to work on like in, in, in a way where you're just thrown into the story because as soon as you step on set, like with Invisible Love, uh, we, shot, we shot in Hoi An in, in Vietnam, which is a historic city that's remained untouched for years. And it just, the, just the set pieces alone were like a character in the film. And I landed, you know, coming from the U.S., it's like 12 hours difference. You know, we stepped on set, got into costume. Even when uh, I met with wardrobe and I saw the different type of clothing that I would be wearing, I knew that I was going to be in for a treat. And I honestly, I feel when you're thrown into period pieces as an actor, it just really allows you to get into character a lot easier because you're automatically transported into like a whole nother universe. And I, I really just, I just straight up from the, the first day to the last day, I just, I, I enjoyed every moment that I was on set for this production. That, that makes total sense as in when you, as an actor, when you dive in and you've got the costume on and the, and the set around you, it's a lot easier for you to sort of lose yourself in the character. Unlike a contemporary piece, for example, where it might be harder to refocus, but when, you, when, when you're locked in character and you hear action, it's a sense you look at everyone around you and you, it's easy to, to sort of dive into that sort of character. That works perfectly, and I see exactly where you're coming from. Uh, Nancy, as a producer on such a large-scale, multinational project, what logistical nightmares did you encounter trying to get this, uh, this uh, project done? You bring the best part of our production. <laughs> <laughs> I, I figured rather than saying what worked well, it's the nightmares I want to hear about. Yes, so our production is... The shooting part, the camera crew, the sound crew are all from China. And actors, we're, uh, we have Cassie from the United States. We have actors from Vietnam. And also we do need an interpreter, the translator between each other. The director is from China. So the director didn't speak English. Then he need a translator to translate into English as well as translate into Vietnamese. So one, 
action, one direction, the director was yelling out, we have a lot of echoes coming up, coming to Chinese, coming to English, coming to Vietnamese. That was the like super great part of our production while, while we're shooting. But people are like understanding with each other, not with the um, words, but also with the actions, the face expressions, the understanding of filming um, during the production time, we're like, still, we made it. I think yes. this brought something very unique to the production because, you know, usual productions are, we gotta go, we gotta go, we gotta do it now, hurry, hurry, hurry. Well, we could not hurry. We, you know, we had to take time for translation. So actually we thought very carefully about everything that we were doing. Much of the emotion in the film is not necessarily conveyed in words, but in, in gestures and in facial expressions and movement. Um, so in, in, in that sense, I mean, even the, even the whole notion of invisible love, love itself, in fact, is invisible. The only aspects you can see are how it plays out in, in individuals' lives and individuals' actions. So it was very different from, from any set that I've worked on before. It was also unique that at the end of the day, after shooting on a very, very tight schedule, we still all liked each other. And I, I think we should get some sort of an award for that. I, now, with the project itself, uh, although it's coming out in 2021, when did you actually wrap uh, production? I think we wrapped up in early 2019. Ah, okay. So you were able to get, the reason I was asking that was because I wanted to sort of find out if you happen to be hampered by the effects of the coronavirus and the lockdown. But it seems you were lucky enough to be able to finish the production or finish uh, the sh uh, shoot anyway, at least before all the general lockdown. What sort of impact has the worldwide pandemic had on the production so far? Nancy, maybe you could help me with that. So during the pandemic, everything is locked down, especially in China, because we do the post-production, most of the part in China. As you know, like Beijing, Shanghai, every, every city was locked down. So the director, Direct Guo, because I'm speaking for him, right? So Direct Guo contact each of the company, it is very hard, but still, so like we suffer a lot, but still, and we do the um, dumping the ADR in US, in Vietnam, and in China. So we actually, we do three different parts. So US, we do the ADR. Vietnam, we do Vietnam part. But China, we collect everything everything together and group as a as a whole. Uh, and is the is the story set is, is the story just set in uh in in Vietnam sorry is it Vietnam or China is, is the story set there or does it move around in uh, across different countries no it's it's it is set in uh, 1930s French Indochina which was primarily Vietnam um, and we did all of our shooting uh in Vietnam uh primarily in Hoi An which is a UNESCO heritage site so Literally, it's this, this, this historic city frozen in time. We also shot material in Da Nang uh, because it, there, were, there were certainly scenes where, where we needed more of an urban setting. We, all, we shot up country. Um, it was a fascinating collaboration, challenging, but I think all of us were quite taken by the, by the challenge. 
That, and the reason why I wanted to ask that, and I wanted to throw it to Kazi. Uh, Kazi, I, I know looking at, at your filmography, uh, as you talked about Dolomite Is My Name, which has a special place in my heart for many reasons. A lot of your work obviously is, uh, is American-based. What was it like traveling to, to Vietnam to immerse yourself in this project? I have to say that, you know, it, 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 you think that it's going to be like a culture shock, right? But it really wasn't because... What I really realized is I was like, film crews, no matter what country you in, they work the same way. And it's funny how like you could just tell from people's energy, like, oh, that guy's definitely a grip. And then you could tell you'd be like, oh, oh, yeah, that's definitely the sound guy. Or you'd be like, oh, that's makeup and wardrobe. It's really funny how like across all cultures, the personality types of the people that are working on the film are are similar. Outside of the language barrier, there was literally nothing uh, different. You know, there, of course, like Bill said, it was, there was a bit of a, of, of a slowdown because, you know, if, if director Guo, who's, who's Chinese, had to give, give me a note, then he would talk to Nancy, then Nancy would come and talk to me. But then if there was a note for like both myself and, you know, uh, the, the, the lead actress, then they would have to split it to, to, to go to like the Chinese they would have to try and, you know, go to the Chinese, to the Vietnamese and back and forth. And then when I wanted to talk to her, it would be this like in between. It was it was to me, that was really it was a challenge. But what what spoke about it really, my, my whole point of saying that, like, film crews kind of have this universal energy was the fact that that universal energy allowed the production to still move forward and still move at, at a good pace to, to get all the shots and to to get all the work done, because you know, human emotion doesn't really have like an, a language. It's, it's, it's universal across every, every country, across every language. So like, to me, it was really um, interesting to be part of a, of a production that even though we couldn't communicate directly, we were still communicating because it was just a group of people all working towards the same goal. No, absolutely. No, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. It, it's sort of it's a similar response that I've gotten from other people who we've interviewed who have worked in other areas within Europe where English is not the first language that is spoken on set. And mm. it's almost it's almost the same logistic, you know, set of logistics that are used in any Premier League football team where you have tons of different uh, people from different countries, all with an English or a Spanish uh, or a Dutch coach having to give instructions to all of these different people having interpreters running along the pitch as well so it sort of works in the same fashion uh and it's great to see that you had you had a great experience it wasn't a troubling or less maybe in five years time there's a there's a documentary that comes out about the troubling shoot that was invisible love (laughs) which i hope there i hope there isn't Uh, it seems you all had a good uh, bonding experience on that project and now it's in the Paris International Film Festival. Um, Nancy, maybe I'll throw it to you first. How did you get involved uh, or how did you get this project in uh, the uh, Paris International Film Festival? So we submit through the film, film free, freeway. Film freeway, yes. For me, uh, Paris International Film Festival is like not only a window, but also a bridge. So give us Paris Film Festival is like give us a window open to help us, letting us know what other filmmakers in the other part of the world, what they are doing right now during the pandemic, but also like um, setting up a platform 
for all the filmmakers, especially the international independent filmmakers, give us a chance, set up, set up the platform to um, let us communicate with, with each other, encourage us to still create the great works in this pandemic. This Absolutely. Episode. And Jenna Suru, who's the uh, president of the Paris International Film Festival, that's her ethos, essentially, to bring independent filmmakers all together, especially with the pandemic, as you said. It's, you know, a, a lot of productions got shut down in 2020, uh, which is why I was asking when you had finished yours. Uh, Bill, let me ask you this. Uh, what is the what do you see as the future of the film Invisible Love? Has you have you found have you got a distributor um, or are you planning on touring more festivals with the project? We're going to be on the festival circuit for a while. And it's, and it's going to be during that period that we're going to make our distribution deals. This is, in fact, our world premiere. And, and we were very serious when we, you know, we, we carefully decided that this is where we wanted to do it. We wanted to make our world premiere at the Paris International Film Festival, in part because of the history of France and motion picture. You know, Lumiere brothers were from France. Arguably the very first commercial film screening ever took place in Paris. So it seemed like a wonderful jumping off point for us. I think distribution is probably going to vary from market to market. Uh, in Vietnam, this, this is going to be a theatrical release. In the United States and probably in Western Europe, it's very much going to be a, uh, an art house film. And then following on to that uh, to streaming video. In China, I think there may be a, a short theatrical run, but probably uh, we're going to emphasize digital distribution. Fantastic. We we hope you uh, you come back onto the show to talk to us more when we've got a theatrical release to get more people in Europe and more people in, in Great Britain across the world getting to watch this film from the synopsis that I've heard and from speaking with you really deeply interested in, in what in watching this film now. Uh, and uh, it's great to see that all of you are working well together. Are, are you planning on doing maybe, you know, another multinational uh, project where the three of you get to work together again? Or uh, is this a case where it's like, we'll see how it goes and then move on? I think very much it's a see how it goes. But frankly, I think all of us would love to work together again. Kazi, do you agree or disagree? A hundred percent. I would I would work with these guys in a split second. Excellent. Uh, Nancy, you can wink if you uh, disagree with the, with the two gentlemen. <laughs> I will be very happy to work Kazi and Bill and with the international productions, for sure. Fantastic, thank you. We wish uh, Invisible Love all the best at the Paris International Film Festival. Thank you all of you for joining us uh, today on Shoot the Breeze. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako, and I'm here with another filmmaker from the Paris International Film Festival. Please tell us your name and the film that you have in the festival. Uh, I'm uh, Daniel Perez, and uh, the film uh, I've done uh, this year was in the festival, was uh, The Archibald Syndrome. Excellent. Tell us about your film. The film is a fantastic comedy about uh, a guy who wants to control everything in his life. And uh, it's a metaphor about this uh, disability. 
So every time he makes a move or he does something, everybody around him is obliged to do the same thing. So it's a little bit problem. And what uh, what sort of influences did you have in the uh, in the construction of this film and making that sort of informed the creation of this film? Well, a lot of people when they are looking at the movie at the end, they talk to me about uh, Tarantino in the art direction. I think not in the story. Uh, but if I have to talk about the story and everything, uh, I think it's more an influence about the, the movies I was watching in the 80s and the 90s at the video clubs when I was a kid. And it's more about Tim Burton and everything. So a Tim Burton fantastical comedy, if you will. Yeah. Uh, excellent. Yeah. So what inspired you personally to make this film? Uh, well, when you write something, it's not the same as just to direct it. If you write it, it's because it's very personal. So I think it's something that affects me also, you know, to want to control everything. I think that affects every director. <laughs> so it was kind of uh, exercising. And how long did it take you to come up with the project and make the project and then bring it to its complete fruition that now it's in the Paris International Film Festival? Well, it has been like uh, two years, I think. But in France, it's a little bit different because in France, it's a, lot, a little bit difficult to produce fantastic movies. Uh, we are more in a realistic cinema here in this country, so it's a little bit difficult to do these kind of movies, but at the end we succeeded. And that's, that's fantastic as well. It's good to know that this is, is something that we get to, because there's not a lot, especially now with COVID and the pandemic, it's sort of, we know uh, that there's going to be an influx of quarantine-based uh, dramas, if you will, it's good to be able to see that there's going to be something coming out that is actually more fantastical and and imaginative and that is coming out. So now you're, you're is it, is it, are we right in understanding that the Paris International Film Festival is essentially this film's debut? Is this sort of your premiere? Uh, no, it has been running on a lot of festivals around the world, actually. It has been, uh, well, and uh, I think by now we are lucky because it's winning a lot of awards of uh, best, best film and uh, best uh, scenario and everything. It has been winning uh, 16 uh, awards around the world, in Europe and the uh, United States and uh, even in India, in, yeah, in South Africa, in a uh, lot of countries. So I'm really glad because it's okay, it's winning, it's, that's a good thing, but the most important is it has been seen a lot. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's good that it's actually getting that much traction, it's going around the world, everyone can actually get to see it. Now, uh, for there are a lot of people who are going to be tuning in to the various uh, programs on Paris International Film Festival to be to catch your film. Uh, is there any, any other way other than the Paris International Film Festival that people can get to see your film or get to know more about it, maybe follow you on social media? Well, I'm not a social media really connected guy <laughs> because uh, I'm working on advertising. So I, that's little also, you know, I'm directing and, and advertising and doing working on agencies and everything. So that's my daily, you know, uh, work. So I'm not used to do it personally, but uh, they can have uh, watched the movie, uh, well, have information about the movie and everything with the production house, which is Bag and Film. Excellent. And am I right in, because I apologize if I butcher the name of the film. Is it Le Syndrome de Archibald? Exactly. 
Excellent. Le Syndrome de Archibald by Daniel Perez uh, currently is going to be uh, played at the Paris International Film Festival uh, between the weeks of the 4th and the 14th of February. Daniel, thank you very much for taking your time to talk to us on Shoot the Breeze about your film. And we, we wish it all continued success as it carries on around the world. You're listening to Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I'm Marcus E. Ako. I'm producer Dave. So those were some of the interviews that we had with some of the filmmakers from the Paris International Film Festival, as well as SMC Silver talking about his latest music video. We're going to be having a, a, a repeat episode that we did. We did it on the podcast, but we didn't put it on Resonance FM, which is with Trey Romano, which is coming next week. But uh, after that, we'll jump back in. We'll come back with more interviews more talk, more combative, uh, you know, more arguments between myself and producer Dave about various things and various topics. One thing that we haven't talked about yet is uh, small acts. We still need to talk small acts. Oh, yeah. We haven't done it yet. Mm. Yeah. We're going to find some time. We'll get that done. But yes. Uh, but it, it, until then, this has been Shoot the Breeze on Resonance 104.4 FM. I have been Marcus E. Ako. I'm still David Campbell. Saying thank you all very much for listening. And speak to you all next week. Stay safe. Wash your hands. Social distance. Let's let, let, get this lockdown lifted so we can go to the park. Bye.